Bibles, I would invite you to turn to the book of Amos as we continue in our study and conclude our study in this uh, glorious letter. Eighteen months ago, in September 2021, Mark Law, former Walmart U.S. e-commerce president, announced a new proposed city that will be called Telosa. Telosa is derived from the Greek word telos, which means purpose. I think his idea is that this city is going to be built with purpose. Telosa is going to have a target population of 5 million people, that's twice the size of Tampa, by the year 2050. And Law hopes to have the first phase completed in just seven years with a population of 50,000 residents. Telosa is planned to be a 15-minute city with workplaces, schools, basic goods and services being within a 15-minute commute from residents' homes. Vehicles that are powered by fossil fuels will not be permitted within the city, with an emphasis being placed instead on walkability and the use of scooters, bicycles, and autonomous electric vehicles. A massive skyscraper dubbed Equitism Tower is conceived to serve as a beacon for the city. The skyscraper's projected features include space for water storage, aeroponic farms, and a photovoltaic roof. Writing in timeout.com in September 2021, Ed Cunningham stated that the blueprint designs are, depending on your taste, either dazzlingly utopian or unsettingly dystopian. There's plenty of innovative architecture on display alongside futuristic visions of public transport and spaces filled with greenery and nature. Now, an utopia typically describes an imaginary community or society that possesses highly desirable or nearly perfect qualities for its members. It was coined by Sir Thomas Moore in his 1516 book, Utopia, describing a fictional island in the New World. The word utopia actually comes from two Greek words. The Greek word ou, which means no or not, and topos, which means place. So utopia literally means no place. Interestingly, Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary has three definitions for utopia. They are, number one, an imaginary and indefinitely remote place. Number two, often capitalized, a place of ideal perfection, especially in laws, government, and social conditions. And three, an impractical scheme for social improvement. Now, I would like to go out on a limb and say that Telosa will not achieve its utopian purpose. You who are much younger than I am need to keep that in mind because I'll likely be long gone before my prediction comes true. And the reason I don't believe Telosa will achieve its utopian purpose is that the founders are not considering 
fallen human nature. They're big into diversity, equity, and inclusion. You've heard of that in recent days, DEI, in ways that are contrary to biblical revelation. I couldn't find a single place on the website that had any reference to churches or even religious institutions. Nevertheless, the fact is that people long for a utopian city and utopian living. But that will only come to fruition when God's Messiah, Jesus, sets up His eternal kingdom here on earth. And the residents of that new Jerusalem and new earth will all be perfect, and there'll be no sin and suffering and fallen human nature to deal with. Today we're going to conclude our study of Amos in a sermon series that I've called A Prophet for Today. Amos, you recall, was sent by God from the southern kingdom of Judah to prophesy in the northern kingdom of Israel. He was sent to warn the Jews about God's coming judgment. And he preached to Israel for one to two years in about 760 B.C. And throughout the book of Amos, we've seen one warning after another about God's impending judgment against Israel. And less than one generation after Amos's ministry, in 722 B.C., the kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. The people of Israel were taken into captivity, never to return to their homeland. But right at the end of his book, Amos shared with his listeners some of the glorious promises that await the people of God in the future. And it sounds a lot like the utopian city that people long to live in. So if you're able, I invite you to stand as I read to you from God's Word in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. This is God speaking at uh, this point, and we read these words. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them, and shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. O oh Lord, would you now open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit that we may hear your word with joy and obey it for your glory and our eternal good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
In Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, we learn about the glorious promises that await the people of God in the future. And as we come to these final verses in the book of Amos, there have been two major ways in which these verses have been interpreted. One way to interpret these verses is to see them as applying literally to the political nation of Israel. Proponents of this view hold that God is going to return the Jews as a political nation to the country or the land of Israel. God will return the land to the people of Israel. And toward the end of history, before the return of Jesus, the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Moreover, there will be a major revival of religion in Israel, and all of the Jews will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Another way to interpret these verses is to see them as applying to spiritual Israel. Proponents of this view do not believe that God is going to do anything special with geopolitical Israel. A large number of Jews may be converted to Jesus Christ, but the temple will not be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Now, my own understanding is, and by the way, these two views are held by good and godly people, but my own understanding is that of the second position. And I'll flesh some of that out as we work our way through the glorious promises that await the people of God in the future. First, God promises to establish the eternal kingdom. Amos wrote what God said to the people in the northern kingdom of Israel in verse 11, where he said, and this is God speaking, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now the expression in that day or on that day occurs five times in the book of Amos. It was a reminder to the people of the day of the Lord. And the Israelites looked forward to the day of the Lord. They thought that it would be a day of wonderful blessing. But in the book of Amos, previously anyway, God meant to tell them that it was actually for them going to be a day of judgment. But the day of judgment would be followed by a day of blessing. And that is what God was saying to the people here in verse 11. Because God said that on that day, he would raise up the booth of David that is fallen. Commentators suggest that the booth of David represents the dynasty of King David. You remember that Amos ministered in the northern kingdom of Israel. And they had rejected the Davidic king and set up their own king. As far as Amos was concerned, in the north anyway, the Davidic kingdom was as good as fallen. But God is going to raise up the booth of David. The dynasty of David will be continued. It will not be continued through the northern kingdom of Israel. Because about 40 years after Amos delivered this prophecy, the northern kingdom of Israel were taken into exiled by the Assyrians, and they never, ever returned to the land of Israel again. So how was God going to raise up the booth of David? 
It's in Jesus, the greater son of David, that the booth of David was going to be raised up and rebuilt. And this is confirmed by uh, James's speech at the famous Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. When the council gathered together, they were trying to decide uh, what to do with these massive numbers of Gentiles coming in. And James got up and he's speaking in reference to Jesus and he quotes this verse. And in uh, Acts chapter 15 verse 16, he says, After this I'll return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I'll rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And he's talking about that in reference to Jesus. And so the kingdom of God that was started with King David has as its final and eternal king, Jesus Christ. He has established the kingdom of God by his life, his death, and his resurrection. He's presently sitting at the right hand of God, waiting for God to send him back to earth to establish the new kingdom on the new earth and set up the new Jerusalem forever and ever. So first, God promises to establish the eternal kingdom. Second, God promises to bless the nations. God continued to say through Amos in verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Now, it's a long time ago, but you may recall from chapter 1 of Amos that he stated that Edom was one of several nations that were going to be punished by God. But why single out Edom? Some scholars suggest it was because Edom, who were the descendants of Esau, Jacob's son, that they were particularly vicious in their opposition to the people of God. And yet, a remnant of Edom will come into citizenship in the eternal kingdom of God. And again, this is confirmed in James's speech in Acts chapter 15, where he said in verses 17 and 18 that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. It's not only the remnant of Edom that will be saved. It includes, in verse 12 here, all the nations who are called by my name, or as James put it in Acts chapter 15, all the Gentiles who are called by my name. And do you see this as the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where he said to Abram, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Amos said that God was going to bless all the nations. This was confirmed by James in his speech at the Jerusalem Council. And ever since the ascension of Jesus, the good news of the gospel has gone to all parts of the world. When the Bible uses the term nations, it doesn't mean a nation as we understand it as a geopolitical entity with geographical boundaries. The Bible uses the term nations to refer to a people group who have a common language and culture. 
So, for example, just in the United States of America, there are many different people groups. In our ESL classes here at the church, I don't know what, there's 60, 70 students coming, there are probably at least a half a dozen different people groups. And how many people groups are there in the entire world? Well, it depends on how one counts a people group. It depends on the factors that are common to a people group. I was looking up on the Joshua Project webpage, and the different organizations have different ways that they, they calculate. But the largest one says that there could be as many as 24,000 people groups in the entire world, of which 8,000 of these people groups are still unreached with the gospel. And as I understand the Bible... Jesus will not return again until there are some people who are Christians from each one of these 24,000 people groups. And that's why missions is so important. We need to get the gospel to all the nations, all the people groups. We need to do everything we can to get the gospel to them. So first, God promises to establish the eternal kingdom. Second, God promises to bless the nations. Third, God promises to end the curse. Amos wrote in verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. God promises, as I said, to establish His eternal kingdom. He will do that when He sends Jesus back to the new earth to set up the new Jerusalem. But that will happen only when people, when some from each of the nations have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus sets up this eternal kingdom on earth, it will be the end of of the curse. You remember what God said to Adam after he ate the forbidden fruit? God said in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, Because you, Adam, have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And instead of labor and struggle and toil and hardship, there will be a staggering abundance in the kingdom of God. A note in the Reformation Study Bible says, The culmination of the Lord's redemptive work through David's greatest son, the Messiah, that is Jesus, is portrayed in terms of endless cycles of fruitfulness that are reminiscent of Eden, but surpass it. By the way, you do know that we will work in the eternal kingdom, don't you? Don't imagine that you're going to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp and just uh, you know, <laughs> singing praises to God all the time. No, we will work 
and play and rest and worship in the perfect rhythm that God intended for us when he created Adam and Eve. And we will find great delight and joy in our work. And everything we do will have no sense of frustration. And as the catechism says to us, we will glorify God and enjoy him forever. So God promises to establish the eternal kingdom, bless the nations, and end the curse. Fourth, God promises to restore the fortunes. God continues to say through Amos in verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And the promise here is really a continuation of the previous verse. There will not only be a massive, a staggering abundance for the people of God, but they'll be able to enjoy the fruit of their labors. By the way, I like the fact that it says there'll be sweet wine because that's my own preference for wine is something sweet. That people will build dwellings. They'll build vineyards. They'll enjoy the wine from those vineyards. They'll make gardens and they will enjoy the fruit from the trees that they've planted. When I was in elementary school, my parents lived in a small community, community out in the country and they had about 150 houses. Uh, they all worked at the factory, a salt glaze pipe factory at the time. And the homes were quite nice and they had very large yards. And most of the people had very nice gardens. And each year there was a, a garden competition to see who had the prettiest garden. My parents had a beautiful garden. And although they never won first place in the garden competition, they almost always placed second or third in the competition. But I think it was at that time that I, I was messed up for the rest of my life and disliked gardening because my job and my brother, our job was to weed the lawn. And we had to weed it to perfection. And I hated it. I absolutely uh, <laughs> hated it. But somehow the weeds still found places to grow in the lawn and I had to pull every single one of them out day after day after day, it seemed. But the good news is, in the new kingdom that Jesus is going to establish on earth, I will love gardening because there'll be no weeds to pull. Everything I do in the garden will be beautiful and produce fruit that I and others will be able to enjoy. So God promises to establish the eternal kingdom, bless the nations, end the curse, restore the fortunes, and finally, God promises to grant enduring security. Verse 15, God says, I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. God promises lasting safety and security to those who belong to him. Now the expression, the land that I have given to them, refers back to God's covenant with Abram in Genesis chapter 12, where it says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Abram went to the land that God showed him. And eventually his descendants did settle in that land. 
But they lost it because they disobeyed God. And the promise here in verse 15, in my view, does not refer to a physical land, but to the eternal kingdom and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that is given to the people of God. It's the eternal kingdom that will be established by Jesus and in which his subjects will be blessed forever and ever. So God promises to establish the eternal kingdom, bless the nations, end the curse, restore the fortunes, and grant enduring security. And so because of God's glorious promises to us, we need to be sure that we will receive them. As I mentioned at the outset, I'm rather skeptical that Telosa will produce the utopian society that so many are hoping to achieve. But I am looking forward to the new kingdom that Jesus is going to establish. That will be the true utopia that beats in the heart of every individual on earth. Well, how can you be sure that you will receive the blessings of the eternal kingdom. First, make sure that you belong to Christ. Only those who are in Christ will enjoy the benefits of the eternal kingdom. And you enter that kingdom by turning to Jesus in faith and repentance. You believe that Jesus is the one, the only one, who paid the penalty for all your sins. And then turn from your sins and walk in obedience to Jesus. And second, it seems to me that the better you know Jesus now, the more you will enjoy the blessings of his kingdom in the future. So I encourage you to grow in Jesus. Spend time with him in his word. Talk to him in prayer. Get to know him so that one day... When you meet Jesus, it'll be much more like meeting a familiar, wonderful friend than meeting a distant relative that you hardly know. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this encouragement from the book of Amos about the eternal kingdom and the blessings that are given to those who are in Christ. Help us to grow in Christ so that we may know him better and better now and enjoy that wonderful inheritance that awaits all those who are in Christ that will last forever and ever. Amen.